0: be appreciated the band leading us in that song, and there's a line in that song that says, You are peace, you are peace, even when my fear is crippling. And we're in a time right now in our world when we see what's happening on the news where it's easy to be shaken, it's easy to be rattled with what's going on in the world events around us, when we see the acts of terror and panic and, and fear when we see the refugee crisis and, and how do we handle that and how do we deal with that and the conversation in, in the public square and on social media, how do we handle these things? And then when we see this stuff, our emotions, they run the gamut. There's a range of emotions that we feel. Sometimes we see some of those images. We think back a couple of weeks and months of a boy being washed up on the shore and there's sadness that grips our heart. There's pain, there's sorrow, and we see the lives that were affected through the shootings at this theater in, in Paris and in different places. But our, but our emotions can continue on and, and we go through grief and, and sometimes it moves towards anger, towards vengeance, towards revenge. And ultimately what can really grip us is fear. Fear can really get a hold of us. And, and so how do, we, how do we deal with that? Now, I remember, for me, a time when fear gripped me like it never had before. It was back in the mid-90s. I had finished my undergraduate work, and then I did a year of school over in Germany. I went to a Bible school there, and while I was at the Bible school, I uh, had to do an internship. And I went to a church in northern Germany, and I did an internship in the student ministry there. And so, uh, you know, I'm in Germany, and what do you do with... St- Students on a Saturday, you go play soccer, right? That's what you go to. You go play soccer. So we went out, we played soccer. And when soccer was over, right next to the soccer fields, there was this community uh, kind of festival, community fair with different booths and, and uh, vendors selling some things. And so we said, let's go over there. And I took, uh, took some of the students. I don't know, must have been like a, a half dozen of us, maybe a dozen or so. And we began to kind of walk around um, the, the, the booths there that they had when all of a sudden somebody singled me out. And it was a Nazi skinhead dressed in camo, him and a couple of his buddies wearing their black combat boots, all of a sudden got in my face. And one of the other guys threw a full beer can at me, narrowly missed me. And then this guy started taunting me. And he says, hey, you American. I was wearing a university shirt. And I said, and I began to speak to him in German. I said, ich bin Deutsche. I'm a German. Well, you know, I spoke speaking in German. Like, what are you, what are you doing? And then he leans forward and he tries to headbutt me. And I lean back and he gets my chin. In the meantime, they walk up and began, kicked one of the other students. Now there's a couple of them around. And I keep trying to say, hey, easy, guys. I'm hoping security, somebody's going to jump in at this time. I find out later that these guys had just been released from prison. And uh, they later that day assaulted somebody with a weapon, with a knife. And these guys were, were bad dudes. And as I'm trying to walk back, all of a sudden one of them just pops me in the face. Like right here. And, and honestly, my first reaction was, Wow, I always thought that hurt more. I had never been punched in the face before, so I was like, well, okay, that's not that bad. But, of course, I was still like, all right, back to the situation here. This is not good. I don't want more of them, but it wasn't as bad as I thought. Um, And and so, but I was pretty terrified because, one, I was responsible for others. I was being, we were outnumbered, and I remember looking around just trying to have somebody help. Somebody step in and help. Some of you vendors, is there security here? Finally, some people came around and said, hey, we don't want that over here. You guys take that elsewhere. I was like, I don't want to take it elsewhere. I just want to take these kids, and I want to get them home. And so I was able to do that, loaded them in the car, took them home. Later that day, those, uh, those guys were arrested for assault even in another place. And, and anyway, long story short. But what happened was it was very different for me. Fear grabbed me in a way it hadn't before. You know, the next day, the, just the thought, too, is I, I had to get up the next day. It was Saturday. I preached the next morning at this church with a big, old, purple, black eye in front of everybody. And, and I remember, though, later after that time, when I would walk uh, in, in the evenings in some of these cities in Germany, or if I was by myself and there would be a group of people, maybe a group of guys on the other side of the street, I remember being afraid. I'd never felt that before. I'd never felt that way thinking, you know, unless I instigate something, unless somebody has a reason, you know, I'm, I'm going to be all right. And, and what happens when fear grips, grips you and how you respond and how you're now thinking in very different ways. And, and when we think about the situation of terror in our world, very different than what I dealt with, much, much worse. But when, when fear begins to grab us, how do we respond? What do we do? Do we just do Nothing. What are we supposed to do as nations, as individuals? Do we do nothing? Do we cower in fear? I know. Let's bomb the hell out of them. Right? We're seeing this all around us. People ranting and raving on social media. Seal our borders. Close our states. Send the refugees packing. Be suspicious of any Muslim or any Middle Eastern looking person. You never know. And fear makes us irrational. And fear begins uh, creating this this sense of of frustration and and concern and and anger and violence and, and vengeance. How do we respond? Because these responses isn't just how do we respond. How do we respond as believers? How do we respond as people of faith? People who are people of the book of Scripture. And I want to talk to us about that today because all those responses that I mentioned before were also responses in the range that I've heard among followers of Christ. And I want to give us some handles, some lenses to more thoughtfully and intelligently respond to this. Now today I'm not making political statements. I don't have solutions. I don't pretend to know what the government ought to do and all the answers to these pieces. But I think we need to look through the lens of Scripture to help us understand how to even process this. How to deal with the fear that we are facing. Now we're in this series, 31 Kings. And it's the story of Joshua, who is the leader of the people of God, the Israelites, as they take and take hold of this land called the Promised Land. And, they, and we've been following them for weeks as they take over and defeat 31 kings to finally settle this land. Today we're in the final two chapters, chapter 23 and 24 of Joshua. And what's interesting here now, Joshua is old. He's gone through this whole conquest. They've settled the land. They've divided it up among the people. And in these final uh, two chapters, Joshua is now speaking as the senior statesman. And he's giving him the final words. In chapter 23, he's calling all the leaders together and speaking to them. And in chapter 24, he's calling all the people together. And what's interesting when we think about the situation they find themselves in is they have now settled this land and determined these borders. Here they are, a nation that's to be following God, that worships God, and all the nations around them have different ideologies, different practices, different beliefs, different worships and religions. They're trying to fight back their borders. There's refugees among their midst. Sounds familiar? This has been dealt with before in many different ways. But how does this nation of Israel now, in this promised land, deal with the world around them? What is their role, what is their purpose, and what does that mean for us today? That's what we're going to look, look at. If you're a, a, maybe here for the first time, or maybe you're a, a new believer, or maybe you don't even know about God, I'm glad you're here this morning. Because you're going to get to hear and see what God is calling the followers of Christ to What is he calling the church to? How do we respond? And for those of us that follow Christ, let this be a reminder. As we hear the words of Joshua, let's also hear and see what does this mean for us today. And so we're going to take a look at this and begin, begin with Joshua, and then we'll look at some of the rest of scripture as well. So let's pray and ask God to really open our hearts to what he has. Lord, thanks for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we're not dealing with something that Um, you haven't addressed or haven't spoken into or give us some guidance towards. And so may we be open to hear what your word has to say this morning. Speak truth into us and speak your life into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at chapter 23 in Joshua, and I've uh, pulled out a few verses just to give you a little bit of an overview, uh, kind of a Cliff's Notes version version of uh, chapter 23. And uh, so let's look at a couple of verses here, Joshua addressing the leaders um, in his final days. The years passed, and the Lord had given the people of Israel rest from all their enemies. Joshua, who was now very old, called together all the elders, leaders, judges, And officers of Israel. He said to them, I am an old man now. You know how old Joshua was at this time? 110. (laughs) Okay? Not an understatement. He was 110. He was 80 years old when he started leading them to take this conquest. And God had given him strength and courage. And here he is at 110. And he's speaking these final words of wisdom to his leaders and to the people. I am an old man now. You have seen everything the Lord your God has done for you during my lifetime. The Lord your God has fought for you against your enemies. Then he goes on in verse 6. So be strong. Remember where that was first heard in this book of Joshua in chapter 1? When God tells him, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Now in his final speech, he tells them, continue, be strong, continue to be strong. Be very careful to follow all the instructions written in the book of the law of Moses. Do not deviate from them in any way. Make sure you do not associate with the other people still remaining in the land. Do not even mention the names of their gods, much less swear by them or worship them. But be faithful. Be faithful to the Lord your God as you have done until now. Moving on. Soon I will die, going the way of all the earth. Deep in your hearts, you know that every promise of the Lord your God has come true. Not a single one has failed. And finally, in verse 16, he says, But if you break the covenant of the Lord your God by worshiping and serving other gods, his anger will burn against you, and you will quickly be wiped out from the good land he has given you. So just in a summary here quick of this, this the speech that he's giving to the leaders, he's telling them these, these, these words, Be strong, be courageous, you've settled this land now. And you, you, you are my people here, now be faithful. Stick to God's words, stick to his truths, and live that out. And when you worship, worship the one true God. Don't worship the other gods around you, worship the one true God. You know what that is? That's the first commandment. The first commandment of the Ten Commandments. Worship the Lord your God alone, right? Thou shalt not worship any other gods besides me. Now we can step back. Now look at the big picture. God has established for himself a nation. What is this whole book of Joshua about? This whole idea of the promised land. Because you can step back and say, wow, isn't that nice? God had his own little special people, and he gave him his own little special favor, and he took out some other kings, and now he was going to lavish the blessings on them. They're good. Everyone else is bad. Protect and hold on to what you have, and stay pure, and, and don't let anyone else in. You could read it that way, but that's not correct. Because if you think that God just had this one exclusive nation, that they were going to be exclusionary or privileged to what God had, that was not his intended purpose. When we go back to Abraham, when God gave this promise to Abraham, what was Israel supposed to be about? He actually said to him, Abraham, you will be the father of many nations. Not just one nation, many nations. And he said, you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth, not just to one family. And then he said this, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. So what God was trying to do here as he established his people was for them to shine a bright light, to be these people that understand worshiping the true God and the way that they live and what they experience as they live that out. It would influence and begin to transform the nations and the people around them, and they would shine a bright light in this world. And all throughout Scripture, we hear the importance of this faithfulness in worshiping God alone. Don't mix and bow down to other gods. Mixing ideologies, faiths, beliefs. And we see that in our own culture. We see this as followers of Christ and as parents, you understand this as you're trying to raise your children in these Christian values. We are surrounded by different ideologies and beliefs and faiths and there's a big common uh, understanding out there which is like, well, you know, everybody's got a little bit of something and somewhere in that mix is the the truth and so, hey, just kind of follow what you want and believe what you want. And here the scripture screams out and says, no, no. Follow and worship the Lord your God only. Stick to his word. Stick to his truth because that's where life and where truth is found. And Joshua is challenging his people in this nation saying, Do not give in. We need the purity of this light and this truth and this worship in God. Without it, you won't have God's blessing. He cannot bless, and you cannot be a blessing to others. So, what does this mean for us today? Are we still, we don't have a nation that, well, some of us think that America is the new Israel. That now America is God's chosen nation. Sometimes we act and we live that way. That this nation, granted, it's been blessed by God in many ways, and we have such freedoms and we can live out our faith, and America has done so much good in this world. But if we start thinking and, and, and confusing America as now being the new Israel and God's chosen people, oh, are we mistaken? Because the new Israel is not America. This is a great country. I love that we live here. But it's not the new Israel. You know what the new Israel is? It's the church. It's the church. The nation the people that now are to be the light into this world, that are supposed to be the blessing that God blesses and blesses others, is the church, not just McDowell Mountain Community Church. It's us right here. It's right there across the street. It's across the, the, the city. It's around the world. It's believers together. It's the church. And the church is called to live a different way. And that same call goes out, as Joshua said to his people we are to be strong and courageous, worship the one true God, be faithful, live that out. Don't deviate from God's word and watch what God can do. And so as we think about these issues that we're dealing with today, terror and refugees and dealing with peace and borders and kingdoms, what I want to look at is a couple of these areas and say, how should we respond as the people of God versus the world, versus those that don't know God? So let's talk first about kings and kingdoms. I mean, this world is defined by kings and kingdoms. We're talking about 31 kings here in Joshua. When we look at our world, there are kings and kingdoms everywhere. What defines a king in a kingdom? Boundaries. Borders, right? I'm going to define this piece of land as mine, and then I will rule that as king. You come in here, I'm going to bop you, I'm going to take you out, this is my land. And actually, you know, I might want a little more land. So I'm going to come to you, the king, and I'm going to take you out, I'm going to take more land. And so this is the way the kingdoms of the world work. You have got to protect your borders and your boundaries, and you've got to keep what's yours as yours. So you defend it and you fight it. Now I'm grateful for the men and women that defend our nation and protect the freedoms and the peace that we have here. And yet that's a nation thing. That's a worldly thing that happens. And that's the way our world has functioned since the beginning of time. But Scripture teaches us that we're part of a different kingdom. Jesus talked over and over again about the kingdom of God. Interesting that he uses the word kingdom, right? Language we understand. But his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not defined by boundaries and by borders and by walls and by tanks and by missiles. And God's kingdom, which is lived out and is brought through the church, is not defined by physical boundaries but is a spiritual reality. It's a spiritual nation. We don't have barbed wire and, again, we don't point our missiles against others. We actually have no walls. God's kingdom looks a lot more like this world from outer space than it does from a map that we see. When you see the shot of the earth, no boundaries, no borders, God sees His people. And He sees His church. And He calls the church to be His agent in this world. And that He is the King of all kings. And He rules in this kingdom. And that our allegiance is first and foremost to that kingdom as followers of Christ. Now, the church and the world and the kingdom of God does have a boundary, it does have a border. But it's actually very small, it's a door. And it's a door that is propped open. And it's a door that is Jesus Christ. Scripture says, and Jesus himself says, I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. And he props that door open and he says, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. Remember hearing that word in Joshua? Over and over, when, they were, when, when God promised them the land, he says, I'm, I'm going to give you this land and lead you to a place of rest. And then Joshua says, when they had finished fighting, they'd come to a place of rest. Well, Jesus is the new Joshua. Joshua was a foreshadowing of Jesus. The names are actually the same, Joshua and Jesus. It means the one who saves. And Jesus now is the one who, who saves, and he is the one that is our rest. It's not found in a physical border. It's not found in a physical land. His rest comes from the kingdom of god it's not of this world and kingdoms are pursuing peace so how do we respond differently in this area of peace well in the world the way the world uh, protects its peace is by force peace by force that is kind of an interesting concept isn't it peace by force by strength by might by submission by intimidation Now, again, I'm not making a political statement here. Governments have to do what governments have to do, and I'm thankful that there is force that keeps evil people out and allows us freedoms in our land, but but we have to process this through and think, how do we respond as believers? Can this force really create peace? No matter how much we build up our walls in in this country, no matter how much money we put into military spending, can we create peace in this nation? The answer is an unequivocal, no, we cannot. Because we don't currently have it. I lived in Florence. You know how many people are in the prisons there? About 14,000 men and women. Why are they there? Because they're violent, some of them. Some of them because they, they have perpetrated great crimes. We can build up our borders, but do school shootings still happen? Do theater shootings still happen? Do drunk drivers still kill people? Do people still commit armed robberies and, and break into homes and, and punish people and do things? yes. Absolutely. So force peace by force is not a long-term solution. It is a temporary solution, perhaps. See, the problem with this approach is that the true enemy is not kept out by man-made borders or force. The true enemy cannot be kept out by man-made borders or force because the true enemy is in the human heart. Evil resides in the human heart, and force and borders and military cannot change that. Only one can, and that's God's kingdom. In Zechariah 4, 6, it says, Not by might nor power, not by force or strength, says the Lord, but by my spirit. And as people of the word and as people of the kingdom of God, we need to be looking at how do we continue to fight the battle on the front lines of the human heart and of the human spirit and allowing God to penetrate the human heart. We understand peace differently. In Scripture, it says the peace that followers of Christ have is a peace that surpasses understanding. We look around, and it doesn't make sense that followers of Christ should be at peace. But we are, because peace is not based on the absence of war. Our peace is not based on the physical surroundings around us. It's a peace that is within. It's a peace that comes in the heart, in a wholeness of relationship with God, of being right with God, of having the freedom in your heart that says, you can kill my body, but you can't take my soul. Because I'm in right relationship with God, and I know the creator of the universe. True peace comes when you can say, in the words of this great hymn, it is well within my soul. Storms are raging around me. My medical situation is this. I've experienced loss and pain. I don't know what you're dealing with in the world, but you can come back to a center that says, even though the storms are raging and the world is going crazy, it is well within my soul. That is true peace. And sometimes when I see these horrible pictures of the persecution of other believers in other countries, Being killed at the hands of terrorists. Sometimes the peace that they exhibit, I know it must be terrifying and fearful and just the worst thing that I can imagine. And yet there's a peace there. That is powerful. That has the ability to change a human heart. Now having peace does not mean having no fear. Having peace doesn't mean that we don't experience fear fear is normal fear is is actually good when we have fear it 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 gives us a response how do we respond to fear what should we do fight flight we need to react there's a danger there but again the world approaches fear differently than we in the kingdom of god should be approaching fear the world fuels it governments feed fear Because if the government can feed fear, it can justify the actions of what they need to take. If our people are afraid, we can do whatever we need on the other side. Now granted, action might need to be taken. But when you fuel that fear, it creates a dependency on power and on rulers and on leaders. And they feed that fear so that can continue to happen and to justify various aggressions. Now the media, the media loves to amplify fear. The media loves to build up fear because when you build up fear, you gain viewership. You gain people tuning back in. And if there's fear, we want to hear more. And so you hear things like, coming up tonight at 11 o'clock, what's lurking right under your pillow that could kill you? Bed bugs. Oh, you got to tune in. Do you give your children milk? Beware. What's lurking inside that gallon of milk that you don't know, right? And it feeds into that and, and, and dials you in because fear makes us long towards that. We go towards that. We want answers and solutions. And the media and everyone fear, feeds that because it's a way of control. It's a way of manipulation. But in the kingdom of God, it is not like that. Do you know that in Scripture there are over there are 365 fear not statements? Interesting, isn't it? 365 fear not statements. As almost as if God said there's one for every day of the year. Anytime an angel appeared or God appeared, fear not the first words out of God's, their mouth or the angel's mouth. Let me just read to you a couple of scriptures. Just listen to these scriptures. What scripture says when it comes to fear. Jesus says, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So have no fear of them. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Right? We have to look beyond us. It's not the body, it's the soul. In 2 Timothy, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. In Isaiah, God says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And another passage in the New Testament says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. See, the New Testament, God does not not just deal in fear and try to win us over through fear. He wants to win us over through love. And as his people, we ought to be the people that respond in love and that push fear back and say, I will have no fear. Somebody asked me after first service, i have fear coming here because I don't know what will happen. We're gathering as believers and I don't know what could happen in a public setting like this. And I said, you know what, trust me, I know, I'm standing right here in front of the door. First shot comes at me, all right? I'm very aware of that. But, but that's the whole point. You cannot have fear. Perfect love drives out fear. And if this is where I go, this is where I go. I'd rather be worshiping and teaching and preaching God's word than anything else. We need to have confidence and trust in God because fear can grip us and make us do irrational and things, things react in a way that, that God never intends us to react to. How do we deal with these things? How do we deal with the refugees all around us? It's so easy to have ideologies and just to have ideas and the political statements and to go down party lines and, and 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 it's a complicated issue, granted. How do, we, how do we keep ourselves safe? And yet how do we deal with compassion? But when when the refugees and this crisis begins to have a face and a name, it feels very differently. A couple years ago, when I was still at my last church, there was a family, a Syrian family, who were there and who have come to the states here in the valley, escaping the terrors of Syria and the terrors of the government to protect their family and their children and the grandparents. They've all moved over here, and they've tried to just find and and start life over again. The husband's still traveling back and forth to try to maintain a business because these are educated people, hardworking people who have business and are losing everything, and yet at the same time, they love their country. They'd love to go back, but they're also appreciative of the opportunity to have a chance and a start and ability to live in peace and freedom here, and it looks different when you know them. I had the privilege a couple of uh, years ago to go to Lebanon and to, be, and to visit some refugee camps in the southern border of, of Lebanon, some Syrian refugee camps, some Bedouin refugee camps, living in tents, children running around you know, looking to, to be nourished, to have hygiene, to have education, people that are caring for those needs, Christian organizations that are looking after them. It's real. When you sit there and you talk to them, you hear their stories. In Beirut, there's been some families that have been resettled in some real meager housing situations, I got to deliver some Operation Christmas, uh, those shoeboxes that we packed for kids, I got to deliver them to a couple of families. And I got to bring them to a house where there was a mother with a young daughter and, a, and, a, and another daughter in her 20s, early 20s. But the terror that they had been through, a husband that they don't even know, the dad, they don't know what happened to him, whether he was kidnapped, whether he was been killed. They have no paperwork, they have no, nothing to document that. And so the government organizations that aid refugees don't know what to do with them because they need that, those documentations, they're stuck. She's working long hours, the, the older daughter. No days off, no weekends, no vacation, just constant work, just enough to try to pay the rent. They're struggling. I sat across from another family, an, an, an Iraqi family, a dad and his wife and several other kids. And he starts telling me some of his story how, how he was just, um, you know, how, how the terror came, how they were manipulating him, how they were embezzling from him, how he was just being, being uh, tortured. They would take him and they would, they would leave him in a room for days and then they'd come and then they'd bring him back and then they'd extort more money from him. And he said finally they would come and got worse and worse that he actually showed me his teeth and said, they cut my teeth out at the gums. Brutal. Reality. This is the refugee crisis when such terror and such awful um, systems are killing people, scaring people. But the uh, refugee story is actually even closer to me than than some of these experiences because I think about my own family. And I think about my grandparents and my dad and his family back at the end of, during World War II in the 1940s had to leave everything they had. They were, in, they were in, in Ukraine and in Poland and Germany, and every time the, the forces advanced, the Russian forces advanced, all of a sudden the word would come, pack everything up, leave everything you have, and they would load up their kids and everything they had in a couple of wagons, left their home, left their fields, left everything, and, and, and went eastward. And then they'd resettle, and then it happened again, and it happened again. They left everything, lost everything. Were refugees on the move several different times. Then my dad and his parents and a couple of his siblings settled in what was East Germany. And we know what happened in East Germany as the communists took over and and began to tighten the borders and it was an oppressive system. My dad, as a young man, said, I cannot live in this, I've got to get out of here. Before they built the wall and totally closed it off, he tried to escape but was caught. They arrested him, they put him in, in, in jail and they threatened him to an inch of his life, don't you ever try to escape again. Being a young man and realizing that this kind of system is not what I want to sacrifice and live my life for, he tried one more time, risking his life to do it. And he made it his way out, and he got to the West, to West Germany. Accepted in a new culture, given a new start. All he had was what he began with on the clothes on his back. It hits closer to home. And while we're not refugees, my family, when we came back over, we got to immigrate here. I'm 100% German get to experience this country and live and and be a part of the good things God has here. It looks different when you see people and faces and to generalize people groups and religions and and begin to to spew hate and fear is not the way of Christ. Welcome the stranger, feed the stranger, care for the stranger, the foreigners among you. Scripture teaches us these things. We can't just have it nice and clean and borders separated and just our faith here and those there. We live in a world that is mixed together. And Jesus understood that. When he's praying for his disciples in John chapter 17, he's praying to, to his heavenly father. And he's talking to him and he's saying, look, the, the disciples, like we're here in this world. And how do we live in this world that's, that, that has competing, again, views and ideologies and religions. And here's how he's praying for his disciples in John chapter 17, beginning at verse 14. I have given them your word. And the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They are not part of this world any more than I am. Make them pure and holy by teaching them your words of truth. As you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. We often hear this passage or we think of these things and it says, we are in this world but not of this world. And some believers have just withdrawn from the world and tried to protect themselves and just have the little Christian huddles and and the fear of what's around them. But that's not what I read here. I hear Jesus saying, yeah, we're not of the world, but you know what? I'm going to send them into the world as I have been sent into the world to be the light, to be God's goodness. And Jesus himself modeled that. Our symbol, the cross, we clean it up here, but... The original cross, an instrument of torture, blood-soaked, blood-stained, representing the punishment and the death that Jesus Christ took. Do you know where that cross stood? It stood at the intersection of a world power and an extremist religion. People who were so zealous of their faith, well-meaning, good-intentioned, but were missing the spirit of what God had wanted to create in them. And a government, and a political government, Rome, that dominated the world, And right at the center of this collision stood the cross and was Jesus Christ who willingly laid down his life because he understood it's not by force or by might, but by my spirit. And the only way to conquer death, the only way to conquer evil, the only way to conquer sin was to lay down his life and to give up his life so that in that we would find new life, modeling for us the very posture of love. Only great love can conquer great evil. Only great love can conquer great evil. You know what I find interesting? Of all the superpowers that this world has ever known and had, and even today's mighty American government and militia, has never been able to eliminate evil, have they? Never. And you know what? Superpowers have come and gone. I pray the United States can continue to find its way and to allow religious freedoms and to to provide peace. But I don't know if this government will stand. mighty nations have fallen. But you know what hasn't fallen? The church. Because the church is not defined by borders, is not defined by earthly kings. It is defined by our heavenly King. And that's the challenge, and that's the call to us to be the church that still stands, the church that can change the world, the church that can influence the world. Don't put all your hope and all your trust in the government and in presidents. Pray for them. Support them. Do what you can. But our mandate is bigger. Our mission is brighter to shine a light and to be the life of this world. Joshua, in chapter 24, when he comes back, and now he's addressing the people. And now he's speaking to the, this nation on his, on his, on his deathbed, essentially, finally pouring things out to them. And he says in verse 14, he says, So honor the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But then he says this, But if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you're going to serve. Stop trying to do it both ways, because both ways equals no way. Choose whom you're going to serve. Because God is looking for those that are going to serve him wholeheartedly with pure devotion. Choose. And that challenge is coming to us as our families to leave a legacy of faith. We need to choose. Who are we going to serve? Who are we going to follow? What are we going to listen to? What ideology? It's the word of God. It's our heavenly king that we follow. And then I love the way Joshua steps forward and he just says this. Look, you guys need to decide. But as for me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. He put a stake in the ground, and he said, we are serving the Lord. We're going to be a bright light. We're going to follow his decrees. We're going to receive his blessings, not to hoard it, but to be a blessing to others and to multiply what God has given us to those around us. How do we respond as followers of Christ? Not with fear, not with panic, not with with anger and aggression. We are calm. We are light. We have peace and comfort. We're people of prayer and compassion. And this is good news in a world that needs this good news, a world that needs our light. If you want to know who we are as followers of Christ, you know who we are as followers of Christ? We are wound healers and mercy dealers. We are hospitality givers, grace givers, forgivers. We're orphan huggers, enemy lovers, light-in-the-darkness casters. We're generous sacrificers, lay-down-our-lifers, foot-washers, truth-talkers, second-mile walkers, other-cheek-turners, and lifelong learners. We're prayer lifters and peace-gifters, cold-cup carriers, hope-bearers, and love-sharers. We are followers of Christ. Let's be that light in this world. Let's go out from here and shine brightly and not let fear overcome us and let us not be shaken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for your word of truth and hope. We know the issues of our day that we're dealing with don't have easy answers and the debates are going to happen and we may even find ourselves on opposite sides of these debates. And yet, God, let us look first into your word and let us look first to you to be your light, to be your presence in this world. And God, for those here this morning that are gripped by fear either of these situations or of something else going on in their life, God, may your light just, and your love just drive out that fear, because you've overcome the world. And God, you open a wide door to all. You don't keep anyone out. You're not exclusionary, God. You embrace with open arms, and I pray that anyone here today that needs to walk towards you and to receive your comfort and your grace would do so. Father, may we be your light and your life in this